Clancy Harrison, a registered dietitian with two decades of experience in nutrition and food insecurity, challenges the way food insecurity is approached in the United States. In this episode of Pathways to Wellbeing, she will discuss the ways in which she's working to demolish the stigma around healthy food access. So you could still have a patient who live, is living in a higher, in a, a larger body, so they might have a higher BMI, uh, but they're still malnourished on the inside because they're not getting that nutrition. And I think if anything from this podcast today is really understanding that that piece of food insecurity and really start to look at how we can expand our definition or our visualization of what hunger looks like in the United States. As a registered dietitian, international speaker, and author, Clancy Harrison challenges the way food insecurity is approached in the United States. Currently, Clancy is an advisory board member for the Pennsylvania American Academy of Pediatrics Food Insecurity Epic Program, ambassador of the National Dairy Council, and the president of the Al Beach West Side Food Pantry. She also produces a weekly podcast on the topic of food insecurity, the Food Dignity Podcast. Food insecurity and insufficient access to healthy foods have been associated with negative health outcomes, including an increased vulnerability for micronutrient deficiencies and a higher probability of developing chronic diseases. Nutritional interventions are essential therapeutic strategies for combating many chronic diseases, yet food insecurity and limited access to affordable, varied, and nutritious foods may impede healthcare efforts. Welcome to the show, Clancy. We are delighted to have you today. Thank you so much. It's certainly an honor to be here uh, to speak and to share really my path into how I've gotten into the hunger awareness uh, arena. Well, I've heard you speak in the past, and I think you really beautifully illustrate how especially as healthcare providers, we can engage with the food system and help to really support our patients. So I wanted to kick us off today with some definitions because it's been really helpful for me to hear how you define food insecurity and hunger. It really helps us to appreciate that this is really a spectrum. I really think it's a thoughtful way that you approach how we define those things, how we describe them. So I'd love to hear from you, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how there's really a continuum with food insecurity and how you define those things? Yeah, definitely. Well, so they're defined by the USDA, first of all, and there's four definitions. The first two is if anyone who were to screen in this, in those two categories, they would be food secure or not experiencing hunger. And so we have high food security. That's really anyone in a household who has access to a steady supply of nutrient rich foods every single day for a healthy and active lifestyle. And then we have a second category, a second definition in that category, and that's marginal food security. And so what happens here is we don't really see a decrease in food intake. Uh, what, what's really going on in the mindset is that, oh my goodness, am I gonna run out of food? There's a stress level. We start to have anxiety where we might not be running out of food or running out of money, but we start to really look at our budget and we really will go to the grocery store and say, you know what, I have $10 so I can buy 10 boxes of pasta or 10 cans of soup. So the 10 for 10 sales are very appealing. And then the other two, we have very low food security and uh, low food security. So in, in this situation, I think this is where a lot of people get it wrong. And because, I, and I'm speaking from my experience as a speaker. And so 
Very low food security is what most people, I believe, associate with hunger. So that's where we go without food. That's where we're skipping meals. Mom might dilute milk so all kids in the house will have access to milk with their cereal. Mom might skip her meal so kids could eat. Or we might not go the whole entire day with eating or maybe a week without eating. So that's very low food security. The other definition is low food security, and that is where you can have enough to eat right? So your, your stomach might be full, but you're not getting the nutrients you need to thrive. And I really, if you start hearing the word nutrient insecurity or nutrient security, this is where that, that terminology falls in. So what's happening here is maybe someone's eating instant noodles day in and day out. If you really think about college, right? When I was in college, I survived on instant noodles. And that really wasn't a rite of passage. That was an example of food insecurity. I had enough to eat. I had a full belly. But what was happening was I wasn't getting the calcium, the iron, the vitamin D, all these great things, protein and fiber that we need to thrive. And that's still food insecurity. So you can still have a patient who live, is living in a higher, in a, a larger body. So they might have a higher BMI, uh, but they're still malnourished on the inside because they're not getting that nutrition. And I think of anything from this podcast today is really understanding that that piece of food insecurity and really start to look at how we can expand our definition or visualization of what hunger looks like in the United States. Yeah, it's so helpful to understand all of these moving parts. And one thing that I've heard you talk about that's really impactful is really any of us could face insecurity at any time because of different circumstances or different shifts in what's happening in our life. And when we start to think about how there's so many differences in what food insecurity can look like, we start to see how we might interface with those things at any given point. And that's really helpful as we're thinking about how we're approaching patients, regardless of their demographic. Yeah. Uh, you know, hunger is in every zip code. It's in every scope of practice. I've had many dietitians. I'm a registered dietitian. So I've had many dietitians that will say, I really don't work with WIC. So when women, infant and children, SNAP, which is otherwise known as food stamps. So I don't really engage with people who are food insecure. And that could be further from the truth because anyone, you know, there's not a zip code that's immune to food insecurity. And it does really exist in nice neighborhoods behind nice doors and nothing more, um, powerful than something like COVID really put a light, a big spotlight on that in the United States. And hunger is, is actually now a very top priority for many organizations. So I'm really glad that we're here talking about this today. Yeah, that's a, a great point. Thinking about how maybe if we practice or work or participate in activities in a more affluent neighborhood, we just make assumptions, right? That people are food secure, but you're right. That's not necessarily the truth. And as a healthcare provider, I've thought about this and I was excited to ask you if you had some advice because maybe not everyone has this experience, but I know from my personal experience, it's kind of hard sometimes to broach that topic and to ask about food security because, you know, maybe that implies that you aren't sure if that person has enough access to food. Do you have some advice about how we can thoughtfully approach the, the conversation? 
Sure. I mean, there's a, there, first of all, there's a screening tool. It's a validated um, two-question screening tool. And the questions are very simple, and we can certainly hopefully share a link of those. But it's, did you ever worry if you were going to run out of food by the end of the month? Uh, very, it's not an invasive question. So the one thing I think is that we're, we're coming, hopefully, out of this pandemic, right? So that's a great focal point. We see this on the news all the time. It's impacted so many people. I just want to ask these questions. And I might, from my experience, people really like to have it on paper versus a verbal conversation during the screening. I do work with pediatricians in the state of Pennsylvania, and this is the research we see coming out of the dyads we're, we're actually creating between a food pantry and a pediatrician's office. So I think that if we can normalize and make sure that we're asking everyone at all times, at all visits, the question, and it just becomes something, the two questions. So it becomes just a standard practice. So we can say, we're asking everyone this because of what happened with the pandemic. And we just wanna make sure that you're getting the nutrients to thrive because we understand nutrient security. And that's that might be even a better word, right? So we understand that people might not be getting the, the nutrition or the healthy foods that they're eating. And instead they might be eating, you know, prepared pancake mix all the time or the, the instant noodles. We don't have to really assume that hunger is starvation or you can't afford it. And so I think when we can normalize the process, asking everyone at all times at all visits, it's not going to seem as if you're pinpointing anyone out. Um, and, you know, there's a really great resource with FRAC uh, Food Research Action Center and the American Academy of Pediatrics. They have a toolkit. Uh, it's screen and intervene. So they have like all this great information on how do you screen with sensitivity. They even have posters you can hang up. And even if you don't work with a pediatric population, this free download will clearly give you some great starting points and it has the screening tool. It has everything in there about coding. And so I think that would be the first place I would start and just to download that and start reading about it and, and, and go right to that sensitivity um, screening with sensitivity section. Okay. That's super helpful. Just as we ask screening questions about, you know, have you been to the dentist and have you had an eye exam? Yeah. I think if we just incorporate those questions into our standard practice, that's going to be super helpful, especially when we think about, you brought up just being in the middle of a global pandemic and anyone who might've been walking that line between being food secure and being food insecure, maybe they've you know been pushed to one side of that fence. Uh, I know you are uh, very active uh, in your local food pantry. I'd love to hear from you, especially in the climate of uh, the COVID pandemic. How has your work with the food pantry changed? How has access changed uh, over the last year or so? Yeah, sure. So we, uh, we're a small food pantry. Actually, we're a large food pantry in a small town, right? But we're a small food pantry if you compare us to big cities. And we went from our distribution on average 150 people to over 2000 people in one day. So the amount of food that we would go through in a month is completely gone within two to three hours. We see, and it's a drive-through operation now. So that's been, I think that's also been very helpful, helpful for people, but we see a lot of people who, what was interesting, they waited until six or nine months into the pandemic before they ever came to us. And that was after they used up their savings. And so now they're coming and they're like, we are, you know, we're at a time of desperation. We really need help. We thought we could get through this. We used all of our savings and, you know, they're just, they just unleash all of this 
I, I don't know if you want to call it guilt, but they wanted to validate why they were there. And that's part of that shame and that stigma we really need to work on getting, you know, rid of. But that's what we see, uh, you know, people who have really lost their businesses that that struggled and now they're here. Hopefully we're helping them, but we want people to know that this is a resource for people that they could, we wanted to support them from the beginning. So they really didn't have to use their savings and wait until they are in this, um, in a, in a worse situation to come. And I also want to share with anyone listening, what was interesting in pre COVID era, we would set up these fresh produce stands and many times people would come through and just start crying. And I would say, why are you crying? Like, what is, you know, what's going on? Can I help you? Are you okay? Did someone say something? And they're like, we can finally follow our doctor's advice because you're giving us produce. Super powerful, right? So are, were they having that conversation with their healthcare provider? Probably not. People don't want to raise their hand and say, you know what? I can't afford the broccoli for my diabetes. But when they come to our food pantry and they see that, they're like, oh, I, there's a solution. I have it in front of me. And that can go back to even also asking those questions. Are, am, I asking, am I asking you to eat food that maybe you can't find at a grocery store? It's not asking if you can afford it. It's asking if you can find it. And we have to remember that finding food and affording food, you know, they're two different things. And food insecurity is not just based on income. It could be if you're living, you know, in a food desert or you have only access to a dollar store or are you going to a full service operational store? So, um, you know, and even if you're working with an elderly population, we want to keep in mind that maybe that elderly person might not have, they might be still living at home, but not have the mental capacity to cook the food, to make the food, they might be able to afford it, but they might not be um, eating appropriate foods, maybe some that have even expired. That also is food insecurity. So I think that's just one other point I want to make here that it doesn't always have to be income related. And I think when we start asking these questions and screening and looking at how things have changed um, within our food pantry and the people that we're working with, I really feel that that was an eye-opening thing that I learned in my process. Yeah, that's great. I I think it's so important that we kind of focus on this, just asking the question piece. Mm -hmm. And one thing I've thought about with the functional medicine model in general is that that's part of our philosophy, that therapeutic partnership and, and telling of the patient's story. That's so, you know, critically important just to the whole functional medicine approach. Uh, and I think that that helps to foster some of that trust and partnership as we ask those questions. Um, I'm wondering from you, how do you feel like the functional medicine approach or model can really help to address the link between food access and just overall health and well-being? Yeah, I think it, it goes back to what you were saying. You know, are we really asking those right questions? Are we screening? Um, but are we going even deeper and asking about where's the favorite place for you to shop? Where do you have cooking equipment? So instead of assuming that people might not have cooking equipment, you can say, do you have any problems with stuff in your kitchen, equipment in your kitchen? I know me, a can opener. I've had so many can openers that were horrible, right? So, I mean, if we can even put ourselves in a situation and have that empathy or that compassion of, I have these problems too, uh, it, you know, you, you're going to start 
uncovering some information. If you even ask, what is your favorite way to cook? And they say a microwave, then now you know, maybe you should ask more questions about a microwave because that might be their only way of cooking. So when we can start really uncovering the barriers to food access from, you know, for many times as a healthcare professional, as a dietitian, I just made a lot of assumptions. When I would prescribe broccoli for, for diabetes management, I was assuming they could get into a car, drive to a grocery store. They had access to the grocery store. That grocery store actually had really great food and then they could buy the food. And then I made assumptions that when they got at home, they had a cutting board. They had a really good knife. They had a can opener. They had a pot. They had a, they had a stove that was working, right? And all of those assumptions went into that that recommendation without me ever even thinking about it. So I think we have to really take a step back and say, okay, I need to really seek to understand what's the starting point of this patient, patient, what's really success for them. You know, if they're eating those instant noodles, maybe we start with the instant noodles and start adding more nutrition to those instant noodles. That is, and if, and you find out that the dollar store is the most convenient place because it's down the street and they're lacking transportation, well, then how do you eat healthy at a dollar store, right? If you don't have access to those higher end grocery stores, um, that I know I used to promote. I call myself a recovering food elitist for crying out loud when I get on stage. So um, I'm fully, I, I put myself right out there saying I was the first to do this. And, you know, I learned from the food pantries in so many cases by putting myself into a situation where I normally wouldn't have been in, um, that I learned that I was wrong. And I learned that I had a lot of projections of my own food philosophy out into the world as a healthcare provider. And I made a lot of assumptions. So one of the things that I really learned is that unless we truly understand barriers and we have these sometimes difficult conversations, we're never going to be the solution. We will always be even contributing to that problem of food access for them because we're not helping them get the resources that they need. I've heard you say before, and I think you just highlighted this with what you just spoke to is, um, you know, as a dietitian and as an educator, you wanted people to understand what you were saying, the advice that you were giving. And then I heard this sound bite from you of, um, you have to understand in order to be understood. And that just, wow. Yeah. And that's not, I just want, that's not, I didn't make that up. (laughs) That's from the book um, from seven highly effective people, right? There's a whole chapter on it. Um, And when I read that chapter, I was like, that's it. It, That is what we need to do. We need to understand people before we ever even want to try to be understood or we're, there's just walls. Someone might be like, yeah, okay, broccoli. I'll go home and eat the broccoli. And then they leave. They're like, I just need to feed my kid. They want me to eat broccoli. I just want food, right? I just need nutrient rich food, but how do I get that? And um, I think it's, it's just a, it's just a really important way, I think, to look at that process that we have in those conversations that we have with our patients. Absolutely. And, um, I keep, I get, keep attributing these quotes to you. So in my mind, you came up with all of this. Um, but I've heard you, you say, you know, I might be the expert in food and nutrition, but I'm not an expert in your life. You're the, the client or the patient, they're the expert in their life. And so we have to look at our nutrition recommendations in the context of everything that's happening. And to a certain extent, I feel like functional medicine practitioners are uniquely suited to do that work because of what we've talked about, that we're, we're willing to, to go to those hard places and have those hard conversations. Um, but oftentimes our therapeutic, our treatment plan does take kind of a food first approach. And I think we can get into a little bit of a, 
you know, a tough spot if we're making all of these food first recommendations and then we're not exploring that contextual piece. Um, and going back to the screening questions, from my perspective, I think just as in medicine, we're taught, you know, don't order labs that you don't know what to do with. If you get an abnormal, it's like, don't, don't open the conversation if then you don't know what to do with the results. And so sometimes I think we're not asking about food security because we don't know what to do. If someone says, yeah, I actually am not able to access the foods that I need. Do you have some advice um, for any healthcare practitioners that might be listening? Um, Oh, actually, if you do find your patient is struggling, here's some resources or some path forward. Yeah, sure. I think, um, first you're right. Like if we screen for food insecurity, then, and someone says, yes, what are the ethical implications if we can't help them right now? We know something, but what do we do with that? And again, if we go back to that, um, screen and intervene toolkit, they have a great from FRAC food research action center. They have a great list of resources on food assistance programs. One thing I work really hard with my, uh, dietitian, my dietetic colleagues and other healthcare professionals I work with, pediatricians, nurses, is how do we start prescribing food assistance programs? You know, we're taught so many times to advocate for the programs, to do our action alerts as dietitians. Uh, But I I ask people to go a little bit further. You know, we don't have to work in those food assistance programs to be a part of them. Any healthcare professional can have the application to a school lunch uh, program on their desk or in their file. And if this person screens positive and they have children, you're going to save them about $6 a day in food if they have access to free lunch and breakfast. And that's on average, right? I'm, I'm kind of making that number up based off of the Feeding America average meal, which is about $3.09. So, I mean, that money can add up. That money could be the budget that they need for their disease management. And something's, and it's really a simple application. And then you can talk, you can help them fill it out. So you're putting tools in their toolbox. They leave, you can say, who do you feel more most comfortable with at the school? Do you have a relationship with the teacher, the principal, the guidance counselor, the lunch lady, whoever it is, you can give that application. They will get it to the right person. And the great news about school lunch programs and breakfast, I'm a product of the 80s. So I remember people having tickets and you knew who was paid and who was free. That's not the case anymore. No one knows. So that stigma is removed. But think of that as an example for all the other programs, SNAP, so otherwise known as food stamps, women, infant, and children, even meal on wheels for your elderly population. I think the more we can learn about these programs and say, hey, you know what, let me let me prescribe these. Let me give you, here's the link, here's the list of resources that you need to get together to apply for SNAP, have them ready, go to this link, do it at home. If you have a, an intern or a medical student that works for you, maybe that's a great opportunity for them to get involved with the patient and start Um, helping people get signed up for food assistance programs. So it doesn't really have to be that difficult. Uh, There's a couple people in your community that you can partner with. So that would be your WIC dietitian. And the reason I say that, even if you don't work in pediatrics, they have a robust referral system. So they already know the grassroots effort in your area. They know where those local resources are, state and national. So become friends with that dietitian and say, look, I'm going to refer to you, but do you mind sharing that resource? And then you're going to have a checklist of all the programs in your area. Also, your local Feeding America Food Bank, they they have a person that's a liaison that sets up their member agencies. So they will know, again, the grassroots efforts. You could probably go on that website and get a list of all the 
programs. I mean, we have something so cool down the street. It's called Dinner for Kids, where this organization every night during the week drives meals, warm meals to kids in our neighborhood. So you wouldn't know about that unless you reached out to your local food bank. And then you could be the one prescribing and promoting those as a resource. Those are some really great suggestions because I feel so many of us have those resources available in our community and may not even know. And you just reminded me, I actually had the chance to contact the dietitian that works at our local food pantry um, to converse with her about some access in our local community. And she shared with me that she actually develops recipe books that utilize a lot of the ingredients that commonly come through the food pantry, you know, beans and dried goods. And it was so nice to have that to offer folks who might say, okay, now I have access to these foods, but I'm not sure what to do with them to have those really practical takeaways, super helpful. Very helpful. And it's not really that difficult. You know, we don't know what we don't know, and it can seem a little intimidating. So I might make it sound easy, but it really is. Uh, It's just having a list of resources that you, even summer, summer's coming up. So summer meals, you could literally have a list of summer meal sites where kids anywhere under anyone under the age of 18 can go and get a free meal during the week at lunchtime. Uh, So again, just having that, those resources that you can give to people would be very helpful. This is um, just came up that I thought maybe it would be good for us to discuss and get your take on that. When I um, contacted my local food pantry, the dietitian actually told me people are spending a lot of money on non food items like diapers. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's taking away from their food budget. Mm -hmm. And what she has found was that it was actually easier to do things like diaper drives rather than food drives, because food might be more perishable. People don't hang on to it where people might have a closet full of diapers that their kid grew out of. It's just sitting around. And that sometimes if we can provide those kind of staple items, it actually frees up some space in the budget. Is that something you've come across with your work too? (laughs) Uh, totally. I don't even want to do food drives because we always get expired. I, I don't want to sound rude, but sometimes people feel that a food drive is an invitation to clean out your food pantry. And then we get expired foods and we ended up throwing them away. And so one of the things that I know people make daily dilemmas every day, they decide, am I going to wash my clothes in laundry detergent? Or can I spend this 10, $15 on bread, cereal, and milk? Right. So am I going to pay for gas or am I going to buy food? And these are days. I mean, it goes from diapers, like you said, to we're in Pennsylvania to heat in the winter. Right. So having I always say that I'm in the diaper business. Anytime I can get my hands on diapers and we do these food drives, they're not food drives. We do do drives that have themes. So maybe it could be like if it's a dentist month, right? So we might do toothbrush and toothpaste. Maybe the next one might be soap and shampoo or diapers, a baby drive, and really try to get those other resources because we know if we can close a gap somewhere else, we're freeing up money that they can use towards towards food. So thank you for asking that. It's really important. Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate hearing that. That just got my my wheels turning of some ideas that we could do. Uh, another thing that I wanted to ask you about is um, about milk. To be honest, I've I've heard you talk about milk as such a great you know nutrient dense mm-hmm. source of good quality nutrition for people, and it made me realize you know using the term food elitism that you brought up earlier. So many of us have 
the privilege to say, well, I'm not going to eat dairy. Dairy's inflammatory. I'm going to avoid dairy. But really at the bottom of it, this can be a really great source of nutrition. And so I feel like this is something that I want to be particularly aware of in our functional medicine community where we're, you know, have the, the tendency to make food rules. And I think sometimes mm-hmm. dairy can be one of these really polarizing topics. Um, so I'd love to hear from your perspective, how emphasizing dairy can actually be really helpful. Uh, I can tell you from a food pantry perspective, milk is the most requested item. We see that in research. We see that with Feeding America. We see that with National Dairy Council. And, you know, the average, the average person that who's food insecure gets one gallon per year. So when we talk about milk being, you know, there's four, there's four nutrients of public concern. That's calcium, potassium, vitamin D, and fiber. Milk provides, a glass of milk provides three of those calcium, potassium, and vitamin D. There's also 13 total nutrients that their dairy is allowed to say. So we have eight grams of protein. If we can get that, and we know that children are at high risk of, anyone's at high risk of low bone density, especially children. So if we can get children enrolled in these school programs, they get access to this milk. We're giving them, we're giving them the nutrients. Super important. From a personal standpoint, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have access to milk. Um, my son does not eat a lot of protein. I think it's a texture thing. That's, you know, that's what I used to write a book about textures and eating infant feeding, childhood feeding. And when it, and he will not, he does not like to chew meat. Milk is really the only way I could get a, a, a high nutrient quality protein. We know we can eat a lot of plant-based foods and there's nothing wrong. Plant-based for me is also when we can put a little bit of animal meat with the, with the plant we can put the milk with the plant. We can still have a plant-based, a lot of plants. There's nothing wrong with that. Just a little bit. We're not talking about a ton of milk. We're not talking about a ton of meat either. So um, it can all fit in a well-balanced diet, but from a mom who worries if my son, even a dietitian, right? I worry if my son's going to get the protein, but guess what? I know he'll drink that milk. Full disclosure, everyone here listening needs to know that I am an ambassador for National Dairy. So I represent, I represent cows, dairy cows, and I get paid to speak. They're usually a sponsor of me. They're not sponsoring me to speak now or at your, at your event, but I wouldn't be an ambassador unless I really believed in the whole um, dairy consumption, uh, especially from a nutrient density standpoint and that it fits in a, in a well-balanced diet. One, one of the things I appreciate about your work is that you're a realist, right? It's like we have all these food ideals, but our lived experience is also a thing and we have to really meet people where they're at, which is, that's our whole foundation in the functional medicine world. Um, and so I think that that's really helpful. Uh, just before we, we wrap up, one thing I've really loved hearing you talk about from the food pantry is that you encourage volunteers and everyone working to, to enjoy the food also. And that builds this whole community and remove some of the shame of accessing because everybody's accessing it. And it's kind of, you know, this community and we're all sharing these resources together. And I think that's a really powerful mental model. Yeah. So it really, it hit me. We used to do pop-up produce stands 
pre-COVID. And we would go to organizations where we knew we can meet people right where they were instead of asking them to go to a food pantry. So we set up in front of a career fair. People are looking for a job. And I remember one day this lady came in and she was so mad. And I learned really fast from these pop-up produce stands is that the people who get the most mad about the free produce are the people who need it the most, but they don't want to be seen as someone who needs it. Right. So they're like, what do you want from this? What do you mean it's for free? You have to be selling something. You need something. And then I would get to the point where I'm like, no, no, it's free. We just want, we're a community. We share food. In fact, I'm going to pack up my food. Do you want to pack up yours and I can help you carry it out? And I would have a bag. They would have a bag. And we get to the parking lot in this one instance. And the lady started crying. She said, we have five people in our house. We have no food. I'm here trying to find a job. I was too embarrassed to even want to take it in front of other people because I didn't want to be, I didn't want people to think that I needed it. And it was like, oh my gosh, right? So then when at the food pantry, I was like, we're all, this produce, it's either going to go in the dumpster if we don't all eat it, or it's going to go bad in the walk-in. So guess what? We're going to all start taking produce home. And we want our clients to see that as well. Our guests, we call people at, at our food pantry, our guests. And I remember the volunteers really pushed back on that for a long time. But then when they finally started taking it, we had something like rutabaga, guess what happened? The guests and the volunteers like, what do you do with the rutabaga? So then it not only, it just created this community where the dialogue changed. And now we have a lot of our people who do come into our food pantry now as volunteers, they do take for themselves. And they also go out and deliver food to their neighbors who they know need it too. So it, it was an interesting start to the process. Um, but I think it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Well, I just think that's a beautiful picture of everybody sharing resources, sharing food, building community in that way. As we come to uh, the end of our episode, I want to wrap up by hearing, what do you see as the path forward when it comes Mm -hmm. to addressing health disparities like food insecurity? I know that's a super loaded question, but just as healthcare provision professionals, I think it's somewhat of our duty to be thinking about these things, especially in the COVID era. Um, and I'd love to, to end with some takeaways about what, what's the next step? What can, we, what can we do to move forward? Well, I think from a personal standpoint, your next step, anyone's next step would be to really reflect on what your definition of visualization of hunger is. Really understand that and try to learn more about that. And Also, I'm going to challenge you to think back to a time in your life where maybe you might have experienced food insecurity. For many years, I said I've never experienced food insecurity, but I also just told you on this call that I ate noodles at college. I've had many people, professionals, healthcare professionals, professors who teach nutrition say, I didn't realize I was food insecure in college. I thought I just had heavy groceries because I ate canned goods, right? Now, these are people teaching nutrition, didn't even know it. And then have these dialogues within your own house. Um, I've had many people after they hear me speak on stage, they'll call, I get the email, I went home and I didn't realize my spouse grew up on food stamps. So if we're not having these conversations in our own house with our own partner or our own children, you know, my, my stepfather was, is a doctor. And when he was in medical school, he was on food stamps. He just told me that he's been my stepfather for 35 years. Right. But I didn't know that. And he knew this was my profession. Um, So we need to really start. How do we start having those dialogues? And then from a professional standpoint, your own uh, your own industry, I'm going to 
I'm going to challenge you. How, what are you teaching your students when they go through school? What are we teaching? Um, are we talking about food insecurity? Are we adapting food or hunger awareness, nutrient insecurity in every single class, right? So from a counseling standpoint, it could be put in from, it, it's not, it's always put in a charity box or a community, a, a community outreach, uh, public health, but it's not. And one of the things that we do at our food pantry is we, we're a site where I'm a preceptor for dietetic interns. And it's really important for me to really work with those students and train them. So when they go out into their profession, they understand it does not matter where you work, your scope of industry, your scope of practice, you are going to be working with people who are at least questioning if they're going to have enough money for food. And that stress alone has been shown to increase 10 chronic diseases. So that impacts your work, it impacts your bottom line. So I guess that's my, if I really think about what the path forward is, we need to, we need to think about how we're educating future healthcare professionals. And is that curriculum where it needs to be in the program so that they understand and are they getting the, the experience that they need um, so they can make better decisions, right? We're all here to learn. <laughs> and um, so that, that's, that's what I truly believe is the path forward is education, not from a personal standpoint, but then from a, a larger infrastructure. Well, as a healthcare professional, I really appreciate the work you're doing to surface those conversations and to surface the resources and the tools that are available for us all to offer support. I think you've given us such practical advice today. And I'm excited for anyone who's listening. I think we all feel more empowered to have those conversations and then to know what we can do with the answers that we receive. So I so appreciate your time. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. To join the conversation on this topic, visit IFM's pages on Facebook and Instagram. For more information about functional medicine, visit ifm.org.